0: Hi, it's Ben Modell. I've been doing my silent film music podcast since 2012, and a few years ago, the first eight episodes of my podcast disappeared into the ether. I still have the audio files, it's just that episodes one through eight were now suddenly unavailable and no longer appeared in the show feed or anywhere online. I have no idea why this happened. Some of the listeners of the Silent Film Music Podcast, maybe you, have expressed interest in hearing these episodes, which is great. So instead of going totally bonkers, troubleshooting everything and trying to figure out what happened and fixing it, I'm just going to repost each of these first eight episodes one at a time. Now keep in mind, as you listen to these, they were recorded several years ago. And here is episode two of the Silent Film Music Podcast, who originally posted June 29, 2012. You'll hear me talk a little bit about the Film Identification Conference at the Library of Congress, now known as Mostly Lost. You'll hear me uh, play for the Ten Commandments on a STEER orchestral organ in Brooklyn. I talk about the ethical issues about uploading silent films to YouTube. This is back in 2012 now. Of course, (laughs) everything's on YouTube. I also talk about quoting popular songs of the day in silent films, as well as a discussion of the record played toward the end of the film, The Crowd. Here is Episode 2 of the Silent Film Music Podcast from June 29, 2012. Hi, I'm Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist and historian, and thanks for listening. This is my silent film music podcast, and this is episode two, air date. Well, I guess you could call it an air date, although this is, well, if you're listening wirelessly, it's an air date, Uh, June 29th, 2012. I really appreciate you uh, taking a chance, giving this a listen, and I'm glad you're back. And I'm glad you found this, if this is the first time you're hearing this. Uh, If you want to help me out, uh, do post a link on your Facebook feed, or your Twitter feed, or Tumblr, or uh, anything else. Anything else that's out there, um, it's the best way for anyone to find out about anything these days. Is uh, really for you, the listener, viewer, consumer, rather than say... Why didn't they advertise this more to post something yourself and recommend it to friends that way? Not just for my podcast, but uh, any any kind of a silent film or classic film event. There's only so much that even advertising itself can do and uh, a venue's social media can do. But if you can be part of the ripple outwards that happens you're actually helping them with the genre and the meeting and medium and helping people find out about shows they might not otherwise have found out about. Let's start off by talking about some uh, programs I've done most recently since the last episode. Uh, I spent uh, July... No, I'm way ahead of myself. J- June 13th to 17th down at the Film Preservation Campus at the Library of Congress down in Culpeper, Virginia. Um, From the 14th to the 16th, there was a silent film identification conference, which this year was called Silent Film Archaeology, although it has been informally referred to as, quote, mostly lost, unquote. Uh, And about 65 or so classic film, silent film uh, historians, enthusiasts, scholars, uh, there were people from archives who a lot of us had not encountered before. Uh, we all gathered at this uh, conference to run unidentified silent films from archives, as it turned out, from around the world, uh, and and try to figure out what the heck these things are. And it was actually a lot of fun uh, out of the almost 80 films that were screened. A little more than half were identified during the course of the conference. I had head down a day early with uh, Steve Massa to help as advance crew, as they say, folding things, stapling things, making coffee, etc. cetera. And uh, the event was a huge success, I think. We all had a great time. Uh, the other accompanists, along with myself, uh, were uh, Andrew Simpson and Philip Carley, and it really was a great idea to have live accompaniment for the unidentified film conference. The films were shown, and during the run of the while the films were running, people from throughout the audience—we you know, we were watching this in the theater down there—were calling out things, uh, recognizing actors, spotting a uh, year on a license plate, or or uh, someone like like Phil Carly ID'd uh, an automobile car make and year and there are people who were experts on westerns or european films and uh, the process could not have worked if all 65 of us or however many it was had individually watched these films and taken notes Um, it was the interplay in the room and people bouncing ideas off one another even when they were wrong uh, or turn and then turned out to be right Um, it, it was that process that was just very exciting There were some films where part of what we were doing as accompanists were uh, just hardly playing at all because there was so much uh, dialogue going on in the room, and and there were some places where we were just stumped. Uh, And so either either whoever was playing for a, a given film, we just played stronger. And as soon as we heard, you know, you're constantly listening out of the corner of your ear for somebody calling something out, we'd come way down until the conversational flow had stopped and we'd come back up. Um, so part of the process was, in addition to trying to figure out what this film was, especially in a lot of these were fragments or started four minutes into the film, to sort of quickly figure out, okay, where are we? And trying to, trying to support the film, but also uh, stay out of the way of the conversation. Um, what, what showed me how important it was, it was that... Um, the day after I got back, on Monday, uh, the 18th, Steve Massa and I and uh, Brent Walker, a Max Senate historian, and uh, Eileen Bowser, uh, we all uh, gathered at MoMA to screen several films, uh, Senate films in MoMA's collection that were identified, but films that Steve and I had looked at over the years. Uh, and because Brent lives in California, we always thought, oh, we should we should make sure Brent sees this. So this was an opportunity. But Eileen remarked uh, toward the end of our screening that day, because I wasn't playing, we were just watching how much harder it was to stay awake uh, watching, you know, these these films that that were identified, and uh, we. You know, we were we were just watching them and enjoying them, but be, and probably you know because the, there was no music going on, it's a harder, it's much harder to concentrate. At the conference, probably the most one of the most exciting things was there was a two reel unidentified Western where really for the entire duration of the film, people were calling out things, suggesting things, and looking things up online. And just before uh, the film ended, someone called out, "Oh, I've got it! It's and they read off the title." and the credits, and, and and just like a minute after that, the film wrapped up, and the uh, we all burst into applause. It was just an exciting, exciting moment. And now, as they say, for something completely different, here's a, a live performance recording, recorded in February 2010 at the Brooklyn Baptist Temple. I was accompanying the Ten Commandments for a series of concerts sponsored by the Brooklyn chapter of the ago the american guild of organists uh you're hearing me play a steer and sons orchestral organ and this recording is something of a collector's item only because the following year there was a very bad fire at the church and uh most of the organ was severely damaged and is probably not going to be Uh, repaired and has not been repaired till now. Here's a few minutes from my score for the Ten Commandments live in performance at the Brooklyn Baptist Temple. Live performance recording at the Brooklyn Baptist Temple on Skirmerhorn Street in Brooklyn, not far from BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. The score you heard is my accompaniment to Cecil B. DeMille's silent film, The Ten Commandments, performed on the temple's Steer and Sons orchestral organ, an organ that is no longer playable, uh, sadly, because of a fire that struck the church in 2011. One of the things I find on YouTube is, and this seems to happen more and more, is the rampant and blatant uploading of films uh, that are released on DVD. And just in the last year or so, it does seem that As often as someone will upload something, they have no business uploading and it maybe gets yanked. Someone else puts it back up. Uh, A couple years ago, it was very hard to find Modern Times or Sherlock Jr. or some things like that on on YouTube. But every couple of months, I'll just poke around and I will find that someone has stuck these films up on YouTube. it will have thousands and thousands of hits. It's getting harder, I suppose, to keep up with things. Every once in a while, I poke around to see if someone has uploaded something with one of my scores on it on YouTube. I've made a practice of posting these things myself where I can get permission. So uh, films I've scored for real classic DVD, I've gotten permission from Mark Roth to upload segments uh, from those releases. Not the entire thing. Uh, Films I've scored for all-day entertainment... Uh, I've gotten permission from David Kellett to upload the entire film. uh, Whereas films I've scored for unknown video, um, there's no permission at all. So I, I, you know, respectfully did not upload anything like that. But apparently uh, there are occasionally things I've scored for Kino that I will stumble onto. And I've had to do something... I wasn't sure if it was really the right thing to do or not uh, what I have done in the past twice is contact the person who's posted the video and said yes I, I realize everybody does this and yes the film you posted is in the public domain and uh, but the score is something I composed and recorded and own the rights to would you at least change your description for the video and include a music credit for me and a link to my either my youtube channel or my website and the first two times this ha- happened um i went wo- i wound up not only uh, befriending uh the person who posted it who enthusiastically said yes i'll absolutely and they changed the description and gave me a screen credit i figured it's the least i can do um, i don't want to be uh, a dick about it and just you know have the thing yanked there is an upload online of Slippery Jim from the Houdini set as well as I think one of the other items on the the Houdini set that now have credits for me. But there's a third one that I found and I I wrote to the person who uploaded it two or three or four times being very polite about it and ultimately never heard back from them. It could be that it's a dummy account or that person's uh, email uh, go is like a hotmail or something so they never get and never get any notifications and uh, so I uh, you know I asked them politely several times to either give me a credit or remove the audio because you can't do that on YouTube you can uh, remove the audio or change it um, so I I put in every rec- copyright violation request and uh, within a week or so uh, the video was was pulled like I said, the, the, somebody else had uploaded the same film and did give me a credit, but I felt kind of bad about that, um, and I still uh, wonder if it was the right thing to do. But I, I I do give people the opportunity to be cool about it and just give me a at least give me a credit because it's it helps with my search engine optimization. Let me know what you think. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter, and that's at sign uh, silent film Music on Twitter. And, well, you can find me on Facebook. Also on the subject of rules of the game, uh, I wanted to talk about my performance last night at uh, The Crowd, King Vidor's 1928 classic silent film. And uh, I accompanied the film at the Cinema Arts Center. And as I mentioned in the last podcast, I found on YouTube the... 78, or something actually very close uh, to the one that James Murray puts on the Victrola in the last reel and dances with Eleanor Boardman. It's a song called There's Everything Nice About You. And what I wound up doing uh, and I kind of decided on this you know, on the train ride out or just during the day while I was practicing the piece so I wouldn't you know, hit too many clams when I played it, when it did come up, to make the melody of this the one of the themes I would use during the film. Now, I do have a rule, as I mentioned before, about using recognizable music, which is that I don't do it. It calls attention to itself, and it just reminds the audience, hey, he's playing Yes, We Have No Bananas, or... Or hearts and flowers or whatever the heck it is or 12th Street rag and it pulls you right out of the picture there are a couple of cases with silent films uh, like the crowd and also Steamboat Bill jr. where there is a a popular song reference in the film that during the film's release uh, would be a song that everybody in the audience already knew but to an audience of today for the most part maybe 99% of the audience or 100 or or 95 doesn't know the piece at all. So what I will do in the case like Steamboat Bill Jr., and which is what I did with the crowd, is um, use the song a couple times during the film so that when it is ultimately used in the film deliberately, even if it's subliminal, it will seem like a piece of recognizable music because it's supposed to be. with Steamboat Bill Jr., I'm, I'm talking about the Prisoner's Song, which is something that everybody knew. It, it's it's a, a theme that Chaplin uses in his score for modern times in the scenes in prison. So there was a hit record in 1925 of the Prisoner's Song, and so the, the song was still in people's minds in 1928 when Steamboat Bill Jr. was shot and released. Um, There's Everything Nice About You was released on... On, uh, I think it's on Victor in 1927. The record scene in the close-up in the crowd is a, uh, with a Nat net Shilkret and his orchestra with a, a, a vocal solo. What I found online is a recording of a vocal duet, uh, which is what I used to sort of transcribe uh, the piece I would have it. I found that by playing it as a waltz, Uh, in a couple of scenes and I used it also during the opening titles and during the sequence at Coney Island was rather effective and I spoke uh, to the audience during our Q&A afterwards and nobody knew the piece and it didn't sort of... uh, they were also unaware that I had been using it during earlier in the film. So it was truly a subliminal thing. So so you know what it is. Here's some of that recording from 1927, on Victor Records, uh, of There's Everything Nice About You, referenced in the last reel of King Vidor's The Crowd. There's something nice about everyone, but there's everything nice about you. And that's some of the 1927 Victor recording by Nat Shilkred and the orchestra of There Is Everything Nice About You, music by Pete Wendling, with a vocal duo. The record label scene in the close up in the crowd is a, a vocal solo, but you get the idea. And now you know how that song goes, and you've probably got an idea why it was such a, a hit, uh, or to whatever degree it was. Uh, but uh, if. It, was around in 1927 and referenced in 1928 in the crowd. It's certainly something the audience at the time would have known. It's a nice, well-constructed melody, and it scans well, meaning the, the melody line and its rhythms fit the lyrics. Uh, one of the things I learned from Lee Irwin uh, was it, things about constructing a melody itself and in and, and constructing a melody where there are lyrics involved, where you want the, the rhythm. And structure of the melody to match as best as possible uh the rhythms of the lyrics in terms of the way you might say them if you were just speaking them and uh there's a nice symmetry to the overall melody it's nice and i've also found that when i take a melody that people know and play it in a different meter like as a waltz or something like that uh, people don't recognize it uh, on on the whole except maybe musicians or musicians who know the piece already so this further adds to the ability to do something subliminally where you're repeating something, but it's not overkill, like those Vitaphone scores you find on late silent films where themes are just beat into your head by, so that by the first 15 minutes you're just sick of them. A uh, couple of shows I have coming up are... At uh, the Silent Clowns film series, we have two more films in our Raymond Griffith series in July. Uh, we've got one more in August, but coming up in July is Paths to Paradise and Hands Up, both uh, pro- arguably his, his best surviving uh, silent comedies and I'm actually very much looking forward to uh, to accompanying you'd be surprised. I haven't seen it in some years and uh, so I'm not as familiar with it as I am the other two films, both of which I had seen. Uh, in high school at at Walter Kerr's house uh, because he had prints, of course. Um, But these two films never fail to get a great, great response. Except there was this one time I I played for the film a couple years ago at MoMA uh, during their film preservation festival. They had done up a a new print in 35mm and um, nobody laughed. It was the weirdest thing. And I thought, okay, well... I'm so close to the screen, I'm maybe too far from the audience, I didn't hear anything, but I I ran into a friend of mine who was at the show and we both were like, yeah, what was that? Nobody, nobody laughed the entire film. Um, Was it because it was a totally green audience and they didn't know who Griffith was and they thought it was D.W. Griffith and so they weren't supposed, I have no idea. But luckily the repeat show uh, at MoMA you know, uh, went fine and everybody laughed and everybody enjoyed it and realized it was a comedy. Um, I'm also going to be accompanying The Avenging Conscience uh, by D.W. Griffith at the Paramount Theater in Middletown, New York. If you are in or near Orange County, go. Uh, Not just for me, but, you know, it's a chance to see a silent film in a Paramount Theater uh, and here, a score performed on a Wurlitzer. There's a beautiful three manual, which means three keyboards, uh, Wurlitzer organ that is maintained by the New York Theater so- Organ Society there. And there's, uh, there's just nothing like seeing a silent film in that sort of a setting, so definitely check that out. There'll be one more film in that series in September, uh, DeMille's Manslaughter, but I'll talk more about that when it gets a little closer. A good deal of the rest of July will be spent doing some recording work, scoring some silent films, a couple things that have come in for my YouTube channel, and some other things that I'll talk more about in about a month or so when I have more details that I, I think it's cool to share with you at that time. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you downloading or streaming this podcast. It means a lot to me that you find this interesting, or educational, or entertaining, or any combination thereof. A quick reminder that everything you've heard in this podcast is copyright 2012 by Ben Modell, all rights reserved. The 1927 Victor recording was sh- shared for educational and historic and cultural purposes. Anyway, I got it off of YouTube, so blame, blame them. Again, my website is silentfilmmusic.com. YouTube channel is youtube.com silentfilmmusic. And until next time, I'll see you at the silence. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to a reposting of episode number two of the silent film music podcast with Ben Modell, which was originally posted on June 29th, 2012. Thanks for listening.